Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Eugene Law, a doctoral candidate in soil and crop sciences at Cornell University. His broad interests revolve around environmental, economic, and social sustainability of agriculture and food systems. During his PhD at Cornell, he's been researching perennial grain cropping systems, particularly from the perspective of crop management or environmental benefits. An inspiring researcher and a dedicated teacher, he holds a number of awards that recognize his dedication to advancing diversity, access, and equity in academia. Eugene Law, welcome to Tidbits of Research. Here at Cornell, you are a doctoral candidate in soil and crop sciences. And I'm going to start with a very general question. What is the coolest thing about studying plants? Plants are just so diverse and interesting in, in their, their life histories, how they live, how they reproduce, how they optimize, like all sorts of things biologically. What I'm reminded of right now, I just saw it on like a Twitter thread maybe a week or two ago with just like all these super cool adaptations that different plants have and thinking about them from that perspective evolutionarily and adaptively it's just really cool. So like an example of that is like the Venus flytrap, which everybody knows the Venus flytrap is adapted to like capture insects to supplement its nutrition, nitrogen and other nutrients. But a more specific aspect of that is that the trap actually closing is really energetically expensive for the plant. And so it has like this feedback mechanism where it needs to be touched three times within like a certain amount of seconds in order to actually close. So if like something just taps it once, it won't close. I think that's just so cool how little things like that have evolved, just like make plants so specifically adapted to, to what they need to do. And like, that's a cool plant in and of itself. It's like carnivorous and everything too. Right. But it somehow has figured out what it is to be worth it. Sure. Yeah. Through evolutionary history. Very cool. I also like love studying plants from the agricultural perspective, just food and the opportunity to like create food out of the ground is just cool too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is this interest into the agricultural aspect? Is this recent? Did you know you wanted to dedicate your career to studying plants early on? No, like to give a little background on my education, I started out undergrad at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in environmental engineering. And I actually don't know if any like 17, 18 year old really knows what they want to do going into undergrad. And I certainly didn't, but I had people that told me that since I was good at math, I should be an engineer. The thing that pushed me towards environmental engineering was always loving the outdoors, loving to go camping, hiking. I was a scout, um, all that sort of stuff. And so I was like, yeah, environment engineering, two things that sound cool. I'm not going to say I didn't like the environmental engineering program, but once I got the opportunity to sort of like test out what it would be like to be an environmental engineer, it was a little bit less interesting than I thought. It's mostly sitting at a computer and office type stuff. And I ended up dual majoring in in biology as an undergrad. And that's where I fell in love with plants. We sort of had like a lot of electives and I took like every plant elective I could. Animals are cool too, but there's not that much different about different animals compared to the amount of diversity of plants. And then, so I I decided to do a master's also at SUNY ESF. My degree was in uh, environmental science with a focus on ecosystem restoration. And so we were thinking about restoring uh, native plants, but also looking at it from a a cultural perspective and the traditional foods of indigenous peoples. And so that's really where I got really interested in food justice, food sovereignty, food systems in general. 
And after doing the master's, it seemed like doing a PhD in sustainable agriculture would allow me to both continue on a career path towards being able to both do research, which I loved, and also teach, which is also something I love. So that's what got me to where I am. And, and Cornell was just a great opportunity for that, being one of the best ag schools in the world. And I'm from Syracuse originally, so being relatively close to home and stuff, everything fell into place. I have so many subsequent questions. <laughs> the, the first one, I guess, would be about this project in your master program in ecosystem restoration. You're saying it's about restoring like food plants of local indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little more about that project. Yes. Yeah, so actually, I just had a paper accepted from that project. It took so long to get it through the review process and publication process because it was sort of at this interstitial space between the fields of restoration ecology ethnobiology and food and agricultural science. It took a long time to find a journal that thought it was a good fit. But the, the whole project started, so my advisor at, at SUNY ESF, Dr. Stuart Demont, uh, he's done a lot in looking at the traditional agricultural systems of Mayan people, indigenous people in Central America. And so they use sort of this rotational agroforestry where they'll, they'll grow crops, maize, and, and other annual crops for a few years in a plot, but then allow it to go back through ecological succession. And during different successional stages, when it's sort of shrubby and there might be a lot of things like berries and medicinal type things, all the way back to like full forests where you can harvest game, like animal products and lumber and, and other things. So they sort of have over centuries or a millennia actually developed this way of sort of like living with the ecosystems and managing their ecosystems. And so we were thinking about that um, and how it could be adapted to New York or other areas in the U.S. and more temperate areas. And I was also working with Dr. Robin Kimmerer at SUNY ESF, who is just an amazing human being, but really an expert on, on traditional ecological knowledge and plant science. She was trained as a botanist. And so working with her, she's, she's an indigenous person, and she's in close contact with the Onondaga people in, in central New York. It was not a participatory project. So we did not sort of like interview any of the local people and try to see what their thoughts were on, on their, their plant knowledge or anything. But we used some historical information about plants that were grown in the region or were wild in the region and were managed as food plants by indigenous peoples. And then sort of selected from this sort of cluster of species we found to look for ones that would be adapted to the ecosystem we were trying to restore. And that was an old field ecosystem. So uh, a, an area that had been used for agriculture and had been more or less abandoned or fallowed for a couple decades. It was sort of really a multi-purpose type of restoration. We were thinking about the environment. Those types of systems have been often degraded by agriculture, especially sort of conventional agriculture where there's a lot of tillage and, and the soil gets beat up and nutrients get depleted and things. Also thinking about the, the cultural aspect of it and the food aspect of it. So we want it to be productive. We want it to be functional from an ecosystem perspective. And we want it to have the potential to be the type of system that people could gather, forage traditional foods from and have that experience, which is something that um, indigenous peoples, it's not just having the food itself. Like if you buy it from a grocery store, it's not the same experience as going out and, and being on the land and harvesting the food yourself and, and having that as part of the experience. So the field site we used was in the Hudson Valley on, a, on an old farm that was owned by one of my colleagues in, in that program. And so it was his family farm and, and they gave us the opportunity to, to work in one of their old fields. We worked there for three years. We got four different species 
tracked their productivity and, and populations over, th over the three years, noticed uh, a couple other things that were going on in the system. I should say, we were also testing how best to restore them, not just putting them in, but doing things like prescribed burning or tillage or mowing to manage the other wild plants there. Uh, many of which were not native species. Also, just trying to, to learn a little bit more about how we could most effectively do this type of restoration for those species. Like, looking back on it, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. It. As a master's student, to take on a project of that sort of scope seems kind of insane now. <laughs> right. Did you know at the time that it was going to be a long, like a lengthy project? No, not really. I'm a first-gen student, and I didn't really understand what I was getting into uh, as a master's student doing that type of project. It was sort of self-driven, like what we were working on, but also with the advice of you and Robin and, and some other advisors that we, we got into this. I think we had maybe originally intended to be a single year, but we decided to just keep going with it. Because the thing with agricultural and like plant restoration, that type of stuff, like do, looking at it for a single year, it isn't going to tell you that much. You sort of need to see like how things change over time. Can you easily remember anything where you now look back and you're like oh yeah I'm glad we had this for three years as opposed to one. Oh, definitely yeah so like looking at the plant populations if, if we tracked like plant survival and, and productivity for a single year it would be not publishable data because there's so many potential confounding factors going on like an animal comes in and eats half your plants or something we did have like animals do that whether it's the, the weather that year is just really bad whether there's a lot that could happen. And so generally in my field, you need at least two years of data to publish anything. Sometimes you can get away with one if you have sort of like interesting and novel results, but you really want to replicate it over time just to show that, that it wasn't like a fluke year or anything. And think of it from a successional perspective. At that first year, we had just applied all of those site preparation treatments, the burning, the tilling, the mowing. And so that had a strong effect on the, the weeds that were growing, the plants themselves. Into the second year, we did not burn anything again. So we're also seeing how those plots changed over time um, and what other wild species came back into them. Uh, so like one unintended thing that we noticed was when we burned plots that first year, it really did reduce a lot of the, the other plants that were there. But in the second and third years, there was an explosion of certain species that were fire adapted, like common milkweed. And milkweed is something that people are trying to restore all over the place for monarch butterflies and other uh, and ecosystem services. So as a scientist, a field researcher, it's those things you notice that you might not have expected or intended um, that then fuel your next questions for research. So actually an interesting story with that was when I started at Cornell through like the, the interview process and stuff, I was actually more recruited to work with milkweed than to work with the, the grain crops that I, I actually am doing my thesis on. My committee chair, Tony DiTomaso, is a, is a weed scientist. And at that point, he had just done this really interesting project looking at um, milkweed and its and multi-level trophic effects on pests and, and crop performance. I was really interested in it because we had been looking at milkweed a little bit already. Milkweed is, is bad for your crops in a sense because it competes with them, right? Um, so if you have a lot of milkweed in your field, then your corn's not going to do that well. But what he showed was that milkweed, by facilitating all of those insects, not specifically the monarch butterfly, but um, other insects, you can actually promote beneficial insects that prey on pests. And so there's sort of like a trade-off between milkweed doing something good for your crop by 
causing the pest dense to be lower versus milkweed competing with your crop directly. And, and you can model how like the level of milkweed in the field that is actually beneficial for, for your system. You can find the sweet spot. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That really intrigued me because I was like from a, from a sustainability perspective, we don't want to just be dousing our fields in herbicides or tilling them all the time to eliminate every weed. So if we can understand how to manage systems to have like crops and wild plants uh, coexist with each other and sometimes facilitate each other, um, that seems like a really cool way to improve the sustainability of our agricultural system. That, but I ended up not doing that because another super cool project sort of opened up to me um, after, I, after I got here. On the one hand, I kind of want to know just more about field research in general. I'm a mathematician, so field research is just mm-hmm. this cool thing that we never get a chance to do. And on the other hand, I kind of want to know about what you're working now. Yeah, I mean, and, and my projects now are mostly field-based, so I probably can touch on that as well. So what I'm, I'm been currently working on for the last four years is developing cropping systems for perennial grains. I describe myself as, as a systems ecologist. So I, some ecologists will focus on a single species. Um, and just think about um, how it interacts with other things. I like to think about the whole system and, and how we can understand, maybe not to the same level of detail, but how everything is sort of coming together to create a system that functions and creates all these interesting emergent properties. So I guess I should start with talking about perennial grains. Grain crops make up like 70% of the human diet, either directly or indirectly. And of that, almost all of it is corn or maize, wheat, and rice globally, if you think about it. And so they're, they're grown on these massive scales. They provide basically the basis of human life from a nutrition standpoint. But growing all of that grain on such huge scales has historically had a lot of detrimental environmental impacts. So there's a lot of soil damage. There's a lot of erosion that goes on. There's a lot of nutrient pollution. There's all these pesticides that are used to protect the crops from, from weeds and insects and, and diseases. There's all the energy that goes into all those things. So we, we clearly need to still grow grain crops, but how can we do that better? Um, and, and feed the growing population while protecting our natural capital that sort of sustains us. And so all of the grain crops that we currently grow are annuals. And so that requires us to harvest and replant every year. And so you can imagine that takes a lot of time, that takes a lot of uh, energy, money, all sorts of stuff. But there's tons of perennial plants out there that you plant once and they just come back um, on their own. And so the idea of perennial grains is if we could, if we could develop crops that are, are perennial, we can get at least some of that food production while also protecting the soil. You got plants in the ground year round and you only planting every, every several years. So there's less tillage, there's less uh, disturbance of the environment. So it's a really interesting way to think about sort of transforming agriculture. But if you think about annuals, they've been developed for literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. For the first large chunk of that sort of informally by farmers selecting the best varieties and sort of locally adapting things. Um, But even for the last hundred or so years, like super high intense research and development has gone into those crops. I mean, you think about the Green Revolution with Norman Borlaug and how massively those annuals increased their productivity, but also became much more entrained into like sort of a single model of agricultural production. So they relied on, on chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides and 
certain varieties of the crop um, that had certain genetic, but um, perennials, historically, many people grew perennials as food, but not in this sort of mass scale system. And so the long story about developing perennial grains is that there's been things out there, but nothing that has sort of hit the mainstream. And in the 70s and 80s, really, here in the US, there was started by Wes Jackson, who's a uh, started the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, and, and others in, interested in similar things. There, there was really this push to start domesticating perennial grasses or hybridizing annual grains like wheat with perennial relatives to make the wheat more perennial. And so I now work with the Land Institute that Wes Jackson started. Uh, the Land Institute has developed what is more or less the first commercial perennial grain, uh, Kernza intermediate wheatgrass, which uh, we're working with in New York. We're also working with a perennial cereal rye developed um, originally in Germany and then um, further developed in Canada. And so with those two or three uh, varieties, we're trying to understand how we can grow them in New York, which is a different climate than Kansas or Canada or Germany. We're trying to understand those environmental factors by looking at the soil carbon storage, a little bit at erosion, but not a major part of it. We're looking at weeds and other pests. I, I did some work with a plant pathologist to better understand the diseases that were impacting these crops, looking at the economics of it and, and what level of productivity we would need from from these new crops in order to make it sort of an economically viable alternative to an annual because they produce less right so currently they produce less grain but typically they produce more forage or straw so animal feed or animal bedding and so there is there's a trade-off there part of the the process of developing perennial grains is trying to increase the grain yields so that they are more competitive so if you have a, a perennial crop that currently produces maybe a quarter of the grain that a wheat crop would, we want to bump that comparative level up to 50, 60, 75% over time, both through breeding, which I'm not a breeder, so um, I rely on others to do that, but also through agronomy, which is the science of um, growing crops and, and managing crops. And so that, that's been an aspect of what we're doing too, is looking at, can we intercrop um, these perennial grains with with legumes that add nitrogen to the soil and, and can complement the grass production. We also have looked at things, simple things like, like when do you plant, when do you harvest, how do you plant and how do you harvest, what are the seeding rates, what are the row spacings, um, what are the settings for your combine when you go through it to harvest. And all of those little things sort of add up to um, improving the our understanding of how to manage the systems and how to and how to get the most out of the crops as they currently are genetically. But as genetics improve, that those things will also play into the system. And then there's really interesting things about perennials that you don't worry about with annuals. Like, what do you do in the second year, the third year, the fifth year? Do you have to manage the, the field differently over time as it ages? And we, we're definitely finding that's true for, for both of the species we're working with. And I'm about to submit revisions for a paper that found that we can um, sort of renovate a stand of intermediate wheatgrass by going in and tilling out strips, allowing it more space to regrow into after it's sort of filled in all of the available space in the field. So it's it's even a little bit more interesting than than sort of conventional agronomy because it's a more complex system, which makes it more difficult to manage, but there's more questions to ask from a, from a research perspective. So for me, it's interesting. For farmers, it, it can take a little bit of convincing to say, we, we need you to do this and then that, and it's going to vary from year to year. So <laughs> we're also working on that. We, we need to be able to communicate with the growers and, and give them tools to be 
successful because we can do all we want to try to work with these crops, but if nobody grows them at a, at a commercial scale, then we're not going to realize any of those environmental benefits that we're looking for anyway. So let's talk a little bit more about that. It sounds like so much of this work is a very good communication with the farmers that you're working with. Mm-hmm. How much do they know about this trade-off between biodiversity and profit? Are they open to perennials? Well, so farmers are not a monolith. And so you'll find different answers to those questions, depending on who you ask. What we've been doing here um, in New York is working with a group of, of local organic grain farmers that are also super innovative in how they produce their crops and how they market their crops. They, they are very motivated by innovation this group. And so they are willing to take more risks. That's amazing. <laughs> Considering your livelihood, right? When we get funding from a grant, we, we put stipends for the farmers in it. So they're not taking a huge risk financially to work with us, like with on-farm research and stuff. And those collaborations are super helpful because farmers know so much that, and they, they're there every single day looking at, at what's going on in their fields and things. So the observations that they share with us are often really um, useful. And, and help us ask our next questions as well. So yeah, it's been great. They've all tried different stuff. We work with them. So some were interested more in like fertilization, some were interested in plant seeding rates or weed management and things like that. So we, we've done a lot of on-farm research there. I will say in, in general, at this stage in development, I would not just want to hand out perennial grain seeds to anybody and say, here, go grow these. It'll be great because that is risky in the sense that they don't have the experience with it. We also don't have enough data to really say this is really the way you should be going with it. And we, we don't want a farmer that, that tries something new to have a bad experience and then like never want to work with us again or never want to try perennial grains again. So we are a bit cautious about who we work with. And the Land Institute is as well. They, they sort of vet the farmers they work with, even at, at the commercial growing scale, because it is being grown commercially in the Midwest and, and is providing grain to General Mills and Patagonia Provisions to make cereals and beers and granola bars and, and other things. So yeah, it, it's cool because it's it's both uh, such a new thing developmentally on the farm, but it's also a new thing developmentally at the food level, the food throughout the food system. So when, when I go to a, Ker- a Kernza conference, we're interacting with the breeders, we're interacting with farmers, we're interacting with food scientists, we're interacting with folks in the food industry, economists, all sorts of folks working together to try to understand like the food system for perennial grains from, from the ground up. And, and so that's been a neat experience as well. And I've, I've like sort of like dabbled a little bit in certain things like um, a collaboration with um, Miguel Gomez in the Dyson School, who's a economist and has done a lot working with understanding what people are willing to pay for in terms of um, environmental services. And so with one of his postdocs and master's students, we did a, a willingness to pay study for bread made with Kernza flour last fall and, and found some pretty interesting results. Basically, the, the, the flavor profile of some of these grains is new to people and they might not um, like it as much as what they're used to with annual wheat, for example. But when we give them information about the environmental impact of it, they would be willing to pay more for that. So, so that's also an in- interesting factor when you think about the economic trade-offs between uh, the annual and the perennial with the perennial producing less, but people being willing to pay more for it. 
I'm working on an economic uh, budgeting analysis right now. You also have to think about not planting the perennial in years two, three, four of a crop cycle reduces the labor, reduces the machinery that's necessary, the fuel, the seed um, that's all going into that. So you, you also have some uh, efficiencies of a perennial due to those reduced field operations. So yeah, it's really neat. And, and actually with the bread study, we worked with Wide Awake Bakery, which is a local sort of artisanal bakery. We worked with farmer ground flour to produce the flour from the grain itself. So integrating through the local food system from the farms to the mill, to the bakery, to the consumer. And, and so that's a really neat thing too. Is there any kind of work in maybe like mixing it with things? Like if its taste is so strong, maybe you can do something like 25% Kernza or something. No, that's a great question. That's actually what we did. So the, the, yeah, the study we did last fall, if, if you make a hundred percent kernza bread, it's, it's very dense because it doesn't rise. It's not wheat. It, it doesn't have the same gluten structures that wheat does. So it doesn't rise the same way. We've worked with Wide Awake and they've made hundred percent kernza bread and it's delicious, but it's, it's much more of an acquired taste, I would say, or, or the type of thing that somebody that is interested, like a foodie type person will be interested in, like a very, almost like a very dense rye bread or something like that. Um, so it might be a little moist, it might be a little bit more chewy and nutty and, and have sort of like complexity of flavor to it versus like a white bread, which is what many people are used to, but is a, is a little bit more straightforward. Um, so we, so that was something we looked at too. We, we had both kerns of bread at, with 15% kerns of flour and the rest being wheat flour and 25% kerns of flour. And that was based on, we had done some test bakes to figure out what would be able to rise to a reasonable degree so that when we gave bread to the people, they weren't they weren't rating it based on like, oh, this is super dense and chewy and this is light and fluffy. They were more rating it on the flavor. So the actual physical properties of the bread were pretty comparable. There are obviously minor differences because of, like the Kernza is darker. So it, it, you, you can see visually that one is darker than the other and, and things like that. Can't fool them completely. <laughs> no. <laughs> I guess they would know what they're doing anyway. <laughs> well, so the first part was a blind taste test. So we, we wanted them to just taste it and say, would, how much would I be willing to pay for this bread? Like without really knowing anything else about it. So that, that was the part of the, the experiment where they were like, yeah, I don't really like the taste of this one quite as much as that one. That's very interesting. So I'm going to be switching gears a little bit. Sure. Let's talk about teaching. You were mentioning that that was one of the things that made Cornell attractive. What do you like most about it? Before I got to Cornell, I did teach elementary school for a year. And that really informed my goal of teaching and research. So doing the master's research, having taught in an elementary school. So I was like, I, I want to do both of these things. How can I do both of these things? And, and I guess when talking about being co-advised, I didn't mention this. Part of the reason that it worked out so well is because Tony is incredibly busy. Um, he's now, he was at that, when I started, just the director of the undergraduate agricultural sciences program and editor of a journal and all the other things that like super productive professors at Cornell do. But now he's also the, the section chair. So comparable to a department chair and just super busy. So getting co-advised also sort of gave me extra mentoring from two professors, one who's like sort of um, well into his career and then at the time Matt was still an assistant professor he's gotten tenure since then but sort of like young and getting stuff going and um, being really um, active in the field and stuff but also to what I should say about Tony is he doesn't teach quite as much anymore because of all of those responsibilities but he's also like been recognized by so many different things as being like a an excellent teacher so he's gotten the Weiss Presidential Award from Cornell He's gotten like USDA teaching awards, WSSA teaching awards. And so 
it, it was a great opportunity to work with him. So I taught weed ecology and management with him for two years, and I taught integrated pest management with him for two years. And that gave me a lot of hands-on experience with, with teaching, with mentoring, with uh, running like lab sections and writing exams and, and all this sort of practical experience that I needed at the, at the like, sort of the college level. So I had a lot of practical teaching experience, just general like pedagogy and, and working with, with students uh, at, at lower levels. But college is sort of a different beast. So I really came in wanting to practice those skills, build sort of a teaching portfolio. Uh, this year, I'll be teaching introductory biology, which is a, another really neat addition to that teaching portfolio, because both the classes I taught with Tony were sort of more specialized. We could get like 20 to 30 students in those classes, so not that big, very uh, lab-focused and, and experiential learning focused. But now I'll be teaching intro, intro bio. I'll be doing two sections. So I'll, I'll be working directly with something like 50 students, but the, the class itself is hundreds of students, right? They're probably mostly first years as opposed to like upperclassmen in the other classes. Diverse background. Yeah, yeah. And it'll, yeah, some of them probably won't be ag science majors that all have this similar course background. So yeah, that'll give me a lot more experience too. Um, and throughout the whole process, I've really focused on gaining teaching experience in other ways. So I've been a Center for Teaching Innovation teaching fellow for the last two years. And that's given me both more professional development myself by being exposed to all the sort of training programs that CTI does, and also the opportunity to lead workshops and, and teach others how to, how to be a better teacher. So that's been great. I've even started getting more interested in education research in the classroom, doing more innovative teaching practices, measuring their impact on students, measuring students' success based on different background, like you're saying, different backgrounds, um, what types of things might be best for a student varies a lot depending on on where they're from and 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 what they're they're interested in. So, um, done a, a couple relatively small research projects there, but I just attended the um, Society for Advancement of Biological Biological Education Research uh, conference last week on Zoom. But yeah, so so the teaching has also been sort of a, a really productive thing for me broaden my horizons and what I'm interested in doing in the long term. What do you think you would like to do in the long term? Oh, I'm still pretty set on trying to find a faculty job somewhere. And so with how the job market is, you know, you can't be too choosy. But I definitely want to have a, a significant teaching component to it. So whether that's at a, a bigger like land grant type school in an agronomy department or weed science department, or in some of the, like, there's like smaller ag tech type schools. I have a, a friend that teaches at one in Ohio. And, and there are like, Su there's like SUNY Cobleskill or SUNY uh, Morrisville, which are, are ag focused two-year colleges here in New York. Or so I guess throughout my entire educational career, I've sort of left options open for myself. Thinking ahead. Yeah, yeah. And so like I could, I could teach at a small undergrad focused school in a biology department and just teach ecology or general intro bio like I'll be teaching this year. And so I, I think that whatever's out there, I'll, I'll keep my eyes open and, and we'll figure it out. Do you think that the fact that you're a first generation student affected your either interests in terms of teaching or in terms of research? I can think of so many mistakes that I've made just because I didn't really understand what was going on. But I also think that that has been beneficial to me in some ways because I also didn't know what I shouldn't do. <laughs> um, and so, so sometimes I'll just be like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go do this thing. I didn't know grad students aren't supposed to do that thing. And, uh, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. I, I would say that being proactive about seeking out opportunities has, has allowed me to sort of overcome that. If I just like 
showed up to the lab every day and and did my work and and went home i i don't think i would have been as successful but by engaging with the cornell community and things like the center for teaching innovation things like the cu uh CERTL program a center for integration of research teaching and learning where i did those education research projects um, the Office of Inclusion and Student Engagement in the Graduate School to, to get more involved in, in different communities and, and do some advocacy work. Plus my, my advisors and, and the labs that I'm working in has given me like this great and very diverse network of folks that, that I can go to to ask questions and to, to figure stuff out. And now, so there's the, the first gen low-income student graduate student association, which just formed like a year or two ago. I've been sort of a member of that and we just had a welcome event for new students the other day. And so now I'm in the position to say to these students, these are the things you should be thinking about off the bat. The advice I wish someone had told me early on, so I didn't make it quite so many mistakes. The Boucher Society, is that how it's? Yeah, Boucher. It's a graduate honor society. It's named for the first African-American doctoral um, recipient in the US, 1876. The society, and I'm going to quote from the Cornell description here, recognizes outstanding scholarly achievement and promotes diversity and excellence in doctoral education in the professoriate. You've been inducted as a scholar this year. Congratulations. Thanks. So I'd like us to talk a little bit more about this dedication that you've had to advance diversity, access, and equity in academia. It seems particularly relevant given the pandemic we are living through. What are some of the conversations you think we should really be having right now? Yeah, being inducted into Boucher is an incredible honor. Um, these, these things have always been important, like like going back to like the motivation to, to like teach and do research, like my teaching experience in, in Syracuse in the inner city with uh, all students of color, all students from sort of like lower socioeconomic status did also motivate me to become someone who can advocate for, for people in that situation and, and provide like improve access to, to STEM education. Because from where I came from, education was everything for me to become like a successful person, I guess you could say, relatively in, in terms of um, now being at an Ivy League school, you know? And so providing that type of access to others is, is really um, important to me. I think that we need to be having a lot of conversations about what our priorities are for our fields of research, for for our society, for, for all of the training that students will need to be successful in whatever they want to do. And you mentioned the coronavirus situation, but also sort of like the, the police brutality, Black Lives Matter situation has exposed us to sort of all these systemic inequities that really close the door on people's uh, opportunities before they're even given a chance, really. And that's something I've seen firsthand uh, with, with both students I work with and like my peers growing up. Like I went, I went to the same Syracuse City school districts, very similar ones to the ones I taught at. And in reflection, like I have to attribute my success to in some part being a white guy in in those settings like i had a lot of different friends who who are not not successful but have not reached the same amount of education or the same career opportunities that i have and i think that it's all these little things that add up along the way right getting the getting a little bit more mentorship getting a little more help from the teachers here not getting in as much trouble for acting up in class that sort of thing um, so it starts all the way from, from K-12 all the way through undergrad. And then even there, we see even just like looking at like studies on it, that, that so many students that start out in, in STEM fields get filtered out along the way based on these sort of weed out classes, which um, are often um, students from underrepresented backgrounds are, are performing uh, worse in those classes. And there's a, a lot of reasons, a lot of literature on why that might be and, and how we might be able to 
avoid it. And then going through into graduate school, right? Um, if we want more people in academia with diverse experiences, with diverse backgrounds, with diverse ideas that, that can help us innovate and, and improve agriculture, improve other, other things that, that people are working on, then we need to make sure that the students with talent, no matter where they're from or, or the color of their skin or anything else, um, have that opportunity. That's why I've, I've done stuff like work with the, the diversity preview weekend as a, as a co-leader bringing in undergrads to learn more about Cornell um, graduate programs in biological sciences. I've worked with the Office of Academic Diversity Initiatives at Cornell, which hosts things like the McNair Scholars Program. So I've been a mentor for several cohorts of McNair Scholars and other uh, educational opportunity programs that Cornell supports. Trying to do my best to, to advocate for folks, to help help folks get the, the sort of opportunities that I got, you know. And then also advocating for graduate students and helping with programs that might get some of these graduate students into the faculty position. Because um, it, it goes all the way up, up the ladder to, to that, where, where women, where people of color are, are severely underrepresented in, in STEM fields at, at the faculty level. And then if they even get to the faculty level, they're even underrepresented with getting tenure, they're underrepresented with getting full professorship, all those things. Like the system filters people out, that's very clear. And why is that happening and how can we avoid that or prevent it or ameliorate it is, is something that I'm interested in. I think that everybody should be concerned about because we're really not going to reach our best potential without the contributions of everyone um, that has the talent and the interest uh, to do science. To kind of end off on a more fun note, um, you're a science fiction and fantasy novels fan. Any recommendations, any must reads on your list? Yeah. Um, so, so recently I've been reading N.K. Jemisin, who is a, a, a Black uh, Afro-futurist author and super, super good books. I, well, she was definitely the first person to win three Hugo Awards in a row, which is just like, if you know anything about the Hugo Awards, it's just <laughs> insane. And so the Broken Earth trilogy, which got those awards, is like so, like so much like going on in those books. One of my other favorite authors, who is very, very popular, so it might not be a surprise to anybody in like sort of the fantasy world, is Brandon Sanderson. Yes, <laughs> I'm such a fan. Yeah, like the, the Stormlight Archive and, and all the Cosmere books are, are great. And then just like so prolific as an author, it's really incredible. And then like, so I guess my, my current read is uh, Joe Abercrombie. This is like more grim, dark, like it's fantasy, but it's more just like really like people fighting each other and stuff like that. It's <laughs> a little bit of magic going on, but like uh, the, the whole grim, dark genre is kind of interesting. I mean, I could go on and on. I've got, I've, I've been reading books like voraciously since I was like a toddler. So just huge library. Um, but if anybody wants recommendations on, on, on good fantasy or sci-fi stuff, I'm always willing to give uh, to discuss first of all for other fans like maybe i should like no i don't want to start a new group or anything. I, was like, <laughs> I should start a, a fantasy uh graduate student fantasy discussion group or something that sounds crazy sounds great right now considering all the things that you've just said you're doing it's just the thing yeah yeah yeah. i've got time for that but like i love it so um that's definitely something i do to like de-stress and and, and chill out is just read something that's not science for a while and even like escape in a very like well-constructed universe yeah yeah and think about like like imagination right so as as a scientist like i have to think a lot about like academic stuff science stuff um, and i think it's also just really valuable to like imagine things like the same way we were when we were kids like 
the work I do is like always informed by other stuff that happened before. But sometimes that can also sort of get you stuck in a rut of thinking about something a certain way. And so like just firing synapses onto something completely out there, I think can be useful. Just like freshen things up, get something else going on. Well, Eugene Law, it's been so great to talk with you. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Yeah, it's been great. We recorded this a while back. I think it was August. It feels like a lifetime ago. And it was so wonderful to come back to it now and discover where our conversation took us. You know, one of the best parts of doing this podcast is having the chance to talk to all of these amazing people about their research, the kinds of questions that drive them, the kinds of things they find interesting. And hearing about the tons of things that Eugene is doing, one can't help but be inspired. Not necessarily to just do more things, but just put your best self forward at every moment. And I want to take this opportunity to thank Eugene once again for chatting with me. I hope you all liked hearing more about how cool plants are and the incredible potential in perennial grain cropping systems. My inner baker was intrigued by Kernza flower, so I'll definitely be on the lookout to try to incorporate that at some point. Our music is Float and Fly by Golgartelli. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again soon.